This is Dr. Lynn McPherson, and welcome to Palliative Care Chat, the podcast series brought to you by the online Master of Science, PhD, and Graduate Certificate Program in Palliative Care at the University of Maryland. I am delighted to welcome you to our podcast series titled Founders, Leaders, and Futurists in Palliative Care, a series I have recorded with Connie Dolan to support coursework in the PhD in Palliative Care offered by the University of Maryland, Baltimore. Welcome everyone. This is another of our great podcasts for the University of Maryland PhD program. And I'm Connie Dolan and I'm one of the faculty for the PhD program. And I'm joined today by Lynn McPherson, Dr. Lynn McPherson, who is the executive director of the University of Maryland Palliative Care Program, both for the master's and for the PhD. And we are so thrilled this evening to be joined by Dr. Declan Walsh. And Lynn tonight is going to take over as the primary person to ask the questions. Thank you, Connie, and welcome, Dr. Walsh. I am very, very, very excited to have Dr. Walsh with us. Um, he probably doesn't even remember when years and years ago, Cleveland Clinic had a program where practitioners could apply to come spend a week there. And I was fortunate enough to be selected for a week. Unfortunately, I had like triple pneumonia while I was there. So I can tell you they have a lovely emergency room at the <laughs> Cleveland Clinic. But, uh, and then I saw Dr. Walsh a about two years ago in Berlin at the European Palliative Care Conference. And I shared with him that I did not realize that the unit he had at the Cleveland Clinic for Palliative Care was really the first in the country. So I was very excited to uh, call him and uh, ask him to help us with this. So Dr. Walsh is an internationally renowned physician, researcher, educator, administrator, and I would say author. I wrote a chapter for his book on palliative care. He did develop the very first palliative care program in the United States. Um, this was at the Cleveland Clinic, of course. Uh, in 2017, he assumed the position as editor-in-chief for the BMJ Supportive and Palliative Care Journal, which is very prolific in publishing, many, many awards, and currently he's with the Levine Cancer Institute. So welcome, Dr. Walsh. Thanks very much. It's uh, great to be here. Thank you. So let's just go way back there. So clearly you are a mover, shaker, troublemaker of the highest order, which I applaud tremendously. So tell us a little bit about how you decided to do this? How did you get this bird off the ground? So go back to when you had this cool idea to open up a palliative care inpatient center at Cleveland Clinic. Sure. Well, I had done a medical oncology uh, fellowship in Memorial Sloan Kettering and was actually intending to stay on there. And through serendipity, um, happened to get a call from the Cleveland Clinic and they were interested in starting a, quotes, a palliative care service. And uh, it was really exactly what I wanted to do at that particular time. So I decided that I would move to Cleveland from New York. Uh, I actually wasn't quite clear where Cleveland was. I knew it was somewhere up in the Great Lakes, but you know, my, the geography was a bit hazy. Uh, but I was very impressed by the clinic's culture and they had identified a need um, based on a particular bad patient experience mm -hmm. that had come to the attention of both the medical and the nursing staff within the Cleveland Clinic. And the Cleveland Clinic is, you know, an internationally known uh, hospital and is famous for innovation in, in, in healthcare. And um, so I decided to, to go there. And uh, although I had 
very little idea what a palliative care service consisted of. And when I arrived there, I found that nobody in Cleveland Clinic either had much of an idea. So it was a, it was a blank canvas uh, to, to some extent. So where did you get the information or the wherewithal to do this? Did you know Dr. Balford Mount? I mean, how did you get the skinny on this? Sure. Well, I had worked at St. Christopher's in London as a research fellow. Oh. And so I had some knowledge of, of, of hospice uh, from the uh, UK perspective. Um, I had visited Dr. Mount's unit in Montreal because we were doing a collaborative uh, research project during my tenure at St. Christopher's. And as a consequence of that, visited the unit. And, and I, I remember walking around thinking, you know, this is more hospice in the hospital. I, what I think we need is more uh, a more acute care uh, type of palliative care in the, in the hospital setting. And, and kind of parked the, the thought, but, certainly that unit was a clear inspiration for the inpatient unit we later developed uh, in Cleveland. Wow. So I know you said that it was one particular event that set this all in motion at the Cleveland Clinic, but do you recall anything about the whole healthcare political environment at the time that made this ripe for the development? Well, I, I think there was a couple of important things as I look back on it. Uh, one was that the Cl Cleveland Clinic, like the Mayo Clinic, it's structured very similarly, is uh, physician-led. Mm -hmm. And I don't think that I could have done the things I did and our group, as later became a group, would have been able to do the things that we did uh, in, or in an organization that was not physician-led. Mm -hmm. uh, because we were able to uh, talk to decision-makers who understood the clinical context of the problem. Mm -hmm. uh, so that was one important uh, aspect to helping us get it done. Mm -hmm. A second thing that I found was that people had personal and family experiences of, and at that time we were focused on cancer, mm -hmm. of cancer diagnoses, cancer deaths in the family, and kind of intuitively knew that that had been a bad experience, but really weren't sure what to do about it. Mm -hmm. And the, the, the chief of staff at the Cleveland Clinic, uh, unfortunately, his daughter, one of his children, his daughter had died at you know, six or seven years of age of leukemia. And it had been a dreadful experience for the family. And he, he took me aside one day and said, you know, you're going to have a lot of opposition or words to that effect, but I'll, I'll watch your back. So just go for it. Uh, wow, that's powerful. But I recall that when I was there, you had a fully developed multi-professional team. Absolutely. So right. were you able to do, the, do that right out of the gate? Did you? What obstacles did you face as you launched this, despite physician support? Right. Well, I did a lot of dumb things. Uh, so let's get that out of the way, first of all. But one of the smart things I did when I was negotiating for the job was to um, ask to have two specialist nurses um, who would uh, focus, cancer trained, cancer experienced, uh, who would focus on helping uh, develop the program. And so the initial team 
was myself and and two nurses and that continued for probably two or three years before we started getting some other uh, staff on board and that was enormously important uh, because of the nursing perspective that they brought because they had trained at the Cleveland Clinic so they knew the culture they knew the cast of characters and so they were enormously helpful in both the clinical care as well as some of the administrative and uh, and cultural and organizational issues that we had to we had to face which were considerable mm -hmm. did you have any assistance from anyone aside from visiting dr mount and your experience at saint christopher's did you have anyone to mentor you or were you really kind of flying by the seat of your pants there were there were uh, you know individual people who were who were helpful in in, in particular aspects of what, what, what i did some of the nursing leadership uh, there was a, a nursing leader called Mary Armour, who was at the Cleveland Clinic at the time. Mary is now in Vanderbilt, uh, has been for a good number of years. Mm -hmm. And, you know, people in administration. But no, there was you, nobody that I would call a mentor, but there were certainly people that were helpful in particular aspects of what we needed to do, whether it happened to be, you know, finance or uh, data collection. But, but nobody that I could call a mentor, no. Mm -hmm. Now you didn't have that beautiful unit that I visited right out of the gate, did you? No, that that's opened in nineteen. The program started in August of nineteen eighty-seven, mm -hmm. and our inpatient unit uh, opened in nineteen ninety-four. So we we were going quite a long time mm -hmm. before that unit opened. Uh, that was as a result of a philanthropic uh, grant uh, that was matched by the uh, administration at the time. And, uh, you know, it was, uh, that was an interesting experience in itself. I'll bet, I'll bet. So you functioned more as a consult service for the first eight to 10 years, is that correct? Uh, yeah, well, I, I was actually doing medical oncology, uh, for mostly for lung cancer, mm -hmm. uh, when I first went to the Cleveland Clinic. Mm -hmm. And the idea was that I would kind of do the palliative care part-time. Oh, I see. So, you know, we got busier and busier and I really lost interest in the chemotherapy side of things. There was a somewhat bit of friction about me getting out of the chemotherapy business, uh -huh. uh, but uh, we managed to work that out. And then I probably about um, three or four years after I've been there, I, I managed to get out of that altogether and focused exclusively on, on, on palliative uh, care uh, activities at that point. Good move. So did you ever despair of getting sufficient referrals or or did you just hit the ground running and word spread and that was that? Uh, it was a, it was a building process. Uh, I mean, there were moments, there were many moments of despair, uh, you know, over the years. But, uh, you know, we focused very much on delivering an excellent clinical service. Mm -hmm. And uh, number one and number two, measuring what we did, collecting data about what, what contributions we had made in terms of patient care. Mm -hmm. And so we did those two things right out of the gate. And between the, the three people in the team uh, really kind of cranked it out over the first few years. Mm -hmm. and, and what happened essentially was that we started as an, an inpatient consultation service, inpatient only. Mm -hmm. And then as patients got discharged from the hospital, people would say, well, why aren't you following them? after they go home. So we started outpatient clinics 
And then those, those patients would come back in the hospital and people would say, well, I don't know what to do with these, these people. Why don't you guys follow them? Mm -hmm. So then we started having our own, if you like, dedicated inpatient, uh, inpatient service. Mm -hmm. um, it was all over the hospital. Uh, we put a pedometer on uh, our first fellow Mm -hmm. And he did 10 miles a day around the hospital, and I did five. Wow. So. I'm glad I don't work at Cleveland Clinic. <laughs> <laughs> so how long did it take for you to reach a tipping point where the clinical, economic, humanistic outcomes made it a moral imperative that this had to be a mainstream thing? Well, I think... We, we certainly hit that when the, when the uh, inpatient unit opened because that gave us uh, credibility. It mm -hmm. gave, us, uh, gave us operational flexibility and it gave us very importantly, significant revenue streams generated by the, the inpatient work that was being, that was being done. We, we subsequently, uh, well, not subsequently, prior to that, we had opened a hospice home care service Mm -hmm. which was owned and managed by the Cleveland Clinic. And so we ended up with a continuum of care uh, for cancer patients that was able to deliver very effective services. So it was a respected program. And the clinic is one of those places where clinical practice is the, is the absolute priority. Mm -hmm. uh, research and education, very important. But if you didn't deliver on excellent clinical care, uh, you, know, you were not going to prosper in that in that setting and mm -hmm. i think that that was a a good commitment we made right out of the right out of the box but it, it was uh, extremely challenging in terms of the mm -hmm. patient population and and the uh, if you like unlimited demands on our on our time mm -hmm. so as you look back 33 34 years if you had it to do over it had a do-over what would you do differently if anything I would have asked for more resources out of out of the gate. That was, you know, that was a, a, a big mistake. Uh, but I was uh, naive, you know. Um, I think that I would have um, been wiser to perhaps uh, go more slowly in terms in terms of the program development. Mm -hmm. uh, it certainly it had a fairly high, you know, high cost. Personally, in terms of the, it was a, we basically introduced a new service or program about every 18 months. Wow. So it was pretty frenetic over a period of about five, six, seven years. Mm -hmm. um, and, uh, but it was kind of one of those situations where I wasn't, uh, as, the, as the movie says, you know, failure is not an option. Mm -hmm. And uh, we, we certainly could have failed. And, uh, and there were many moments when we, we thought we were going to because there was some um, hostility uh, to the idea uh, amongst uh, some physicians and, and others. Uh, administrators worried about, you know, where, where were all these very sick cancer patients coming from mm -hmm. and seemed to be unable to understand that we already had the very sick cancer patients uh, that what they were worried about was you're going to bring in a lot of very sick cancer patients, if you like, in, that we were inventing a new patient population mm. and didn't understand that, that these people are already there. We just needed to improve the care of the patients that we already, we already had. Right, right. So if we had gone, if we go, went back 33, 34 years, 
and said, what do you think palliative care will look like in 2021? Would what we have today have been what you would have predicted? How is it different from what you would have said at that point? Well, our, our focus at that time was on the cancer population and that was my own particular interest. In fact, of course, still is. Uh -huh. uh, we did we did broaden our, our remit in later years to include intensive care unit consultations, cardiology and, and so on. And that has continued at the Cleveland Clinic to to this uh, to this day. Mm -hmm. uh, so I think um, I would not have perhaps anticipated the the wider commitment to, you know, the other patient populations outside of cancer that that has, has developed so um, effectively and so rapidly. And um, also probably the growth in the number of programs has been just extraordinary. Uh, looking, if looking back on it now. Mm -hmm. uh, so, but, you know, we were in the moment and you were kind of, I mean, it was so all consuming to do what we were, we were doing that, you know, for example, I didn't travel very much or, you know, go to meetings and stuff like that because we were so, um, so busy simply trying to keep our nose above water and to demonstrate that the program and the services we provided uh, were meaningful and that uh, this was something that was worth supporting. And we were very fortunate, as I mentioned, there were several senior physician leaders who, who really got behind us. And I, I'm sure they took a, quite a lot of heat about from it, uh, heat uh, about it rather, uh, from some of their colleagues at the time who must have thought that they had lost their minds supporting this crazy <laughs> guy, Walsh, you know? Yeah, well, I don't think that was the case. I mean, clearly you've shown um, indisputably, I mean, just the idea of the continuum of care that you developed back then, and we still can't pull it off in a lot of places today. It's just amazing, I think. You must have served as a model of excellence for many other institutions. Did a lot of people come and visit you and ask how you did this and how can we do it? Oh, sure. We had visitors from all over and we, you know, we were uh, designated by the WHO as a, as a demonstration project and mm -hmm. um, some other things like that. So, yeah, we had people from all over the country and all over the world. In fact, that, that program that you participated in, mm -hmm. I think we had people from every state in the union uh, come to, to, to visit us. And that was fantastic. I, I personally really enjoyed meeting people from multiple disciplines as well as from so many different uh, geographical areas across the US. So that was a fantastic uh, experience. It was lovely. I know we were all so impressed with the unit. We were all picking out our individual rooms because it was so beautiful. Mm -hmm. yeah. <laughs> so where do you think this, this train is headed? What do you see with your crystal ball for the future of hospice and palliative care? Well, you know, I personally feel that the, the way that hospice was introduced in the United States was unfortunate. Um, and, you know, I wrote an article about it some years ago, sort of critiquing it, critiquing it. I think it, it, if you compare that experience to the European experience, it's a very different concept in the United States. And people in the US and people in Europe often don't understand how different hospice is operationally and clinically between the, between the two uh, parts of the world. 
so I'm, I don't have much contact now with, with hospice. I was our, the hospice medical director and was, was very involved with that. But I, I really wish that hospice was an additive benefit uh, to you know, traditional clinical care. Mm -hmm. uh, I, I, th I, I really don't like the idea of people being forced to make that choice between yeah. hospice or and I, I, you know, it just seems uh, it varies from being cruel uh, to being unnecessary. Uh, so the, I can't think of a good thing to, to say about it, actually. Uh, so I, I would like to see that changed. And I, I know many people in the field would, would share that, uh, that sentiment. Yeah. We had a discussion last night with um, Steve Connor, who was part of creating the benefit, um, and his sentiment was was somewhat similar of saying that you know they had to make a deal with the devil that mm -hmm. if they didn't do something, it would have the outcome would have been worse, and so sort of you know the whole part about making a compromise, and yet here we are, and people have been so terrified of touching it, given the political realm, and I think. In my mind, you know, even like around the end of 2008, 2009, when people were wanting to do that, once the whole advanced care planning became death panels, people sort of were like, okay, we're not going to go into this because this is not that. Although, you know, I would say I worry we could be going into a conservative wave again um, that has implications. But I think, you know, that's one of the things that I, um, I'm really intrigued about because I think when you your comment about what hospice looks like in Europe versus what it looks like here, here it is, we make people make the difficult choice and there's still inequities about it, right? Because you have this federal benefit. If you're not old enough, you don't get it. Or you know, maybe if you have certain conditions, if you have Medicaid, it's so variable from state to state. And we know in the South, it's pretty non-existent. And then, you know, if you don't have insurance, I mean, for all the right reasons, you have some hospices that can do whatever they call it, subsidized care, charity care, whatever. Um, and then you have others that can't. And so then you kind of are, have a lot of people who are left with nothing, right? But then they get upset with palliative care for, I mean, it's a very interesting part because I think it's also, that's part of the reason of this, um, I'm going to say nicely friction between hospice and palliative care. Is that sure. kind of your thoughts as well? Kind of that? Yeah, I think so. I mean, you know, I think that it's, it's, it's just, it was just unfortunate. I mean, and I totally understand the people at the time who were involved with setting it up wanted to get something done, but the, the but the trouble is it's got set in stone. It's in the permafrost. Mm. And I, I think that the experience since uh, suggests that, you know, it's time for time for a change and, and in fact, we're well beyond time for a change in, in, in my view. And I don't underestimate the difficulties of that and um, you know, the complexities of dealing with the federal bureaucracy and, and so on are just uh, extraordinary, uh, let alone the political ramifications that, you, that you've, you've mentioned. So, uh, but you know, I think it's time for, time for a change. Uh, that would be my feeling. And what would you, I mean, so that didn't work. What would you have liked to have seen or where would you like us to go if you had a complete blank slate? Well, I think it should be, as I said, an additive benefit that, that, that you know, irrespective in a sense of your prognosis or, or your, um, your particular illness, 
that if you are, you know, frail, you need help, you have a life-threatening illness, uh, that that type of backup and support should be available to you and your family. I mean, you know, the 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 hospice is trying to sort of deliver care and their their budget for, and uh, I'm, I'm sure this figures out of date, but their 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 budget for medications is ten dollars a day for patients. I mean, it's 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 nuts, uh, you know, and the, the constant uh, patients getting referred, you know, three days before they die. I mean, it, it's not the it's not the the intent of what um, of what um, um, excuse me of what Cicely Saunders originally envisaged. It just is not, and so um, and you know it's it's a different society and and different cultures and the U.S. is a complicated, much more complicated society than many European uh, countries are. So, I mean, we have to be sensitive to, the, to those issues, but, but I think uh, it, it, it needs some, um, some adjustment. And, you know, the friction between the palliators and the hospice folks um, is a, a continuing feature of that, which has been uh, very un unfortunate. Um, and then, so the question then arises too, what's going to happen with palliative medicine, palliative care, as a philosophy and as a discipline. And I like to refer to palliative care as the philosophy and palliative medicine as the discipline. That's how I like to sort of, you know, construct it. But, um, you know, for example, I mean, suggestions have been made that uh, uh, palliative medicine takes on everybody with Alzheimer's. Well, you know, okay, that's, that's fine. Uh, but where is the workforce? Uh, where are the where are the trainees? Uh, is this is this really practical? So, I think we need to revisit, um, in a in a very clear-eyed way, the the business models around which around which around how palliative medicine services are constructed and what they can realistically accomplish. And I think there's been a lot of loose thinking about about that. Uh, put it that way um, and you know it's a young discipline and it's still in evolution and and it's one thing that's key in any kind of program development is to never promise anything that you can't deliver on and that was one of the the absolute principles by which we on which we worked uh, that we, we would not do anything unless we knew we were going to be successful mm -hmm. so I think there have been some um, loose talk, put it that way, about about what powers of you know care can 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 realistically deliver, given its current stage of development and given the workforce uh, that's available. Mm -hmm. uh, can I just can I just interject for a moment? My battery is just running a little bit low. I just noticed, so I'm just going to uh, take a moment to to plug in, so I, we don't run out of juice here. So for all of our students and our listeners, just in case you're wondering where Dr. Walsh got his adorable accent, it's because he's from Ireland, the beautiful <laughs> green, green grass of Ireland. So why don't we wrap things up with a couple of things? Number one, Dr. Walsh, what is your very best advice for the graduates of this PhD program? What do you got for them? Well, I think um, 
the, the field is a, a challenging uh, and stressful endeavor. And it's very important to have a plan of work and of life that will allow you to continue to be successful in the long term. And uh, I think that uh, my experience has been that there are many people who are motivated to go into this area, uh, but they sometimes have not thought through uh, the realities of, and I'm talking about patient care, not talking about research or education, the realities of confronting um, the multi-system disease, the complexity and the acuity of these illnesses in, 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 and confronting those every day. You know, if you're if you're in an, an active clinical practice in this setting, there's 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 no there's no light relief. You know, if you're if you're doing pulmonary medicine, you, know, you can have your patients who have, you know, chronic asthma and they're on maintenance therapy, and you check in on them every you know, six months and make sure they're they're doing okay. But if you're in active palliative medicine practice, you're confronting. A, a rapid turnover of patients, uh, multi-system disease, their families are often distraught. Uh, they've got socioeconomic problems that are coming to bear, uh, their communication challenges, you know, et cetera, et cetera. It's an enormous clinical challenge. And, uh, you know, I salute anybody who's going to go in into the field, but it, it is important that people are clear-eyed about what they're, <laughs> what they're getting into. And I, I do worry, a bit, you know, if you think about people that influenced uh, people like myself, and you mentioned Balfour Mount or your own or Cicely Saunders or other people like that, they all had a life, both personal and professional, before they got into this. Mm -hmm. We're now taking, I'm just talking from a physician perspective, physicians straight out of their residency, putting them into a palliative medicine fellowship and then saying you're now going to spend the next whatever 45 or 50 years of your life doing this and I, I wonder sometimes whether that's wise and the, the risk of burnout and um, you know disillusionment and so on are, are significant and, and, and again speaking just from the physician perspective many of the stresses and strains that have come to bear on physicians, particularly in recent years, with the advent of the electronic medical record and uh, other major irritants uh, like that, um, has increased uh, stress and burnout on the physician population in general. And I do worry about our graduates and how they're, how they're best looked after. You know, should they be doing palliative medicine 80% of the time and the other 20%, they do, you know, something else that, that is going to refresh them, can still make them productive physicians and so on. And of course, the same issues apply to, to nurses and others who are in the front line in that regard, mm -hmm. whether they're working in a, in a hospice unit or a palliative medicine unit, or they're a clinical nurse specialist in the area. You know, you've got these great people. I mean, how do how do we keep them and how do we how do we nurture them? I think is a, something that uh, is uh, very important. I, I mean, I congratulate you on the PhD. I think people who are well educated and well prepared 
um, and are much more likely to be successful. And, and strong support systems and strong educational programs build that kind of professional confidence that will reduce, it won't eliminate, but it will reduce or minimize some of the stress and strain that people experience, but it's inherent to the field and it will never go away. Yeah, it's a heavy lift. Would you do it again or would you have stayed on the chemo wagon? <laughs> no, I wouldn't. Uh, I, uh, the chemo wagon lost, lost its charm uh, for, for me <laughs> very quickly. I was never really that interested in it. I just did it because at the time there was no palliative medicine. Right. I, you know, when I was working at St. Christopher's, I became more and more interested in the problems of patients with advanced cancer. Mm -hmm. But there was nowhere that you could specialize in that. So I thought the best thing to do is to train as an oncologist. So I at least be able to make a living. Um, and I would have some professional specialist qualifications, but my intent was always to focus on the needs of patients with uh, advanced cancer. Well, it's certainly been a boon to our whole field to have you on this side of the fence. Connie, anything else you want to ask Dr. Walsh? Now, I guess there's just in the sense of, you know, you, you kind of just touched on it. And I, I feel like we have to ask you, um, you've seen a lot over your career and, um, you know, just moving into the um, oncology part, certainly the AIDS crisis and then COVID. I'm just sort of curious if that also has changed your perspective of palliative care at all or just reinforced your thoughts or... Yeah, no, I think it's uh, it's interesting you say that. You know, I'm editing this uh, BMJ journal now. And we've had a lot of contributions about the interface between the pandemic and and various palliative medicine and hospice services and programs around the world. And I think it's just brought into greater clarity two things. One is that it's important that there are these these structured palliative medicine services that can come you know, into the ICU or whatever the, 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 or the emergency room, wherever the patient can, might be and bring that expertise to bear. And so that's one thing. And it's quite clear that every hospital, every major cancer center should, and I don't mean like we have access to palliative care services, which is a, that's like in the US News and World Report. It's a, you know, wishy-washy thing that we, we, we may have it, maybe we don't have it, but at least we can say that we kind of have it. Right? I'm talking about, you know, you really got a, got a, something that's a substantive program. And then the second thing is that it's not sufficient to have that because of the enormous number of patients who need these, um, these uh, services programs and, and help. And so educating our colleagues, uh, you know, in nursing and rehabilitation and in, um, in, in various medical specialties, and particularly in you know, some obvious specialties like cancer care and cardiology and so on, educating them about the principles and practice of, of palliative care as part of their education as specialists is, is absolutely critical. And we, we have to get these ideas into specialty uh, training. And, and just to give you one example, um, you know, in, in medical oncology training, as far as I'm aware, there is next to zero education for physicians about malnutrition in cancer care. 
despite the fact that nearly every cancer patient suffers from malnutrition at some point during their, their illness. And wh why is that? I mean, it doesn't make any sense. And you can make the same comment about the inclusion of palliative care education in every professional curriculum, especially primary palliative care skills. Every yes. doctor, nurse, pharmacist, social work, chaplain, all should have some exposure. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Right on the money. And, and so, because there will never be enough, you know, quote, specialists to to deal with all of with all of the with all of the issues, right? And you, you know, in the United States, it's just unfortunate that that primary care, you know, has not been developed as well as it has in some other countries, where you know, uh, you know, when I grew up in Ireland, the understanding was your local general practitioner would take care of many of these issues, and they did, and did a very good job about it. Mm -hmm. After you left Ireland. <laughs> Well, uh, that's, a, that's a longer story. <laughs> Stay tuned for part two. <laughs> Any last thoughts, Dr. Walsh, let me wrap up. Uh, the only other thing I would say is that, you know, as we developed this, I mean, we, we tried to, and in Cleveland, we tried to take a, a business-like approach to it. And I, I think it, that, you know, I would just, you know, for your students, I mean, let's not be starry-eyed about this. At the end of the day, you know, we have to deliver high quality clinical services. They have to be, you know, at least economically self-sustaining. And, and so a business-like approach to the development of these programs and services is, is very important. I mean, just because we think something is great doesn't mean that, you know, everybody else has to think it's great. And sometimes there's a naivete there around the realities of medical practice and hospital administration and I think that 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 has contributed somewhat to the lack of of uh, integration of some of the services and and the lack of continuity of services and programs that you referenced earlier on. Mm -hmm. All excellent points. Well, Dr. Walsh, thank you so much. Thank you for your career long contributions to our field. We wouldn't be where we are today if it weren't for people like you. And thank you so much. My pleasure. Thanks for having me on. Thank you. I'd like to thank our guest today and Connie Dolan for the continuing journey in our podcast series titled Founders, Leaders, and Futurists in Palliative Care. I'd also like to thank you for listening to the Palliative Care Chat Podcast. This is Dr. Lynn McPherson, and this presentation is copyright 2021 University of Maryland. For more information on our completely online Master of Science, PhD and graduate certificate program in palliative care or for permission requests regarding this podcast, please visit graduate.umaryland.edu forward slash palliative. Thank you.